We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder Drew Gear. Be aggressive. You have literally nothing to lose. You're a borderline football team. If I don't keep laughing about this stuff, my teeth are going to turn around and devour my brain. The Bills make me wanna. Josh Allen apparently has come a long way in a completing percentage and completing passes. He can do the short and intermediate routes, and of course, he can throw the deep ball. That's what the guy draped on him. Yeah. He's insane with his arm. He's a great athlete. And last year, he was playing without any touch and without any real accuracy. Now you add that to this, we're all excited about Baker Mayfield, Lamar Jackson, and of course, Sam Darnold. This might be the guy who takes the biggest leap and leads his team to the playoffs. Josh Allen, fantastic rookie season in spurts. Expect a consistent year, year number two. Ooh, welcome everybody to another edition of the Rockpile Report Podcast. I am your host, Bill season ticket holder, Drew Gear. That's my producer, Chris Krueger, and that was Peter Schrager of NFL Network. Oh my God. That's Josh Allen going to make a leap this year. Hopefully not over a linebacker. I've seen enough of that for one lifetime. Yeah, well, we made a we made a leap over to YouTube today uh, this weekend. <laughs> so finally on YouTube for anybody that, that does not know, we're on YouTube now. We have one video up. It's the Rockpile Report press conference. It's going to be the flagship video on our YouTube page. We'll be live post game with press conferences. Drew at the podium giving. The answers that we want to know, not the coach speak answers you hear from McDermott. Folks, I, I don't think you understand. So for those of you who've been following the show for a really long time, you know that we've gone live on Periscope, usually at some point, either the day or the night before a game, usually at some point in the middle of a game in terms of the halftime adjustments. And then we've been, you know, I've been known to uh, have a few Chardonnays and maybe take to the, uh, take to the camera because knee jerk reactions, everybody's got them. And sometimes, apparently, people enjoy seeing mine. Well, we've fleshed it out a little bit. We've decided that YouTube seems like a great platform for it. We've fielded emails and DMs and for, what, the last years. two years? Years. About people carping about the fact that we don't have one. Well, you got your wish, guys. So guess what? You get to see Chris's terrible hair. More of it. Exactly. You, you get to live my nightmare. 
Yeah, just uh, go to YouTube and search the Rockpile Report, and then uh, subscribe if you want the content. Fantastic. Now, Chris, you heard it in the intro. We talked about this last week. The Buffalo Bills hype bus, 2019 edition. It's getting ready to leave the station. I thought it already left. Oh, no. People are still piling on, and it's getting worse. You hear it. People who strike me, like Daniel Jeremiah, and I, I don't even know. Michael Robinson, he gets he gets no credit for this. No, because he's been doing it for three the last Schrager. four years. Okay. Is there anybody else out there in the universe who's still standing with me on the platform who's not quite ready to get on the bus? Anybody? I, I'm on... <laughs> I'm driving the bus, but I'm not ready to turn on the engine and go. <sighs> so, folks, I found out something interesting. And I think it's worth bringing up here on the podcast. So you know how much we love Seagram's escapes on this show. Okay? It's, it's, <laughs> love, we have a love-hate relationship with them. You, the red and white, blue and red scrimmage was there at the stadium, and people were out in throngs. And obviously, they get the concessions pumping for that, Chris. You know? Here's one of the things that I came away with, and now that I have the information at my disposal, I think that there is a the Bills are missing a massive opportunity for themselves here. Folks, for those of you who've ever attended a Bills game, a bottle of water, they sell you a, I think it's a 24-ounce bottle of Aquafina. It costs you $5. Retail price for Aquafina water is $5.98 for a case. A case that's 32 bottles at Walmart. Per ounce, it costs you 1.1 cents per ounce to buy at retail. At New Era Field, the 24-ounce bottle that's $5 costs 20 cents per ounce. Now, when you look at the, at the markup percentage compared to retail, it's 1,818%. Chris, that sounds pretty good, right? Sure. I mean, I'm not a financial major, but go right ahead. So the profit after cost of a single bottle of Aquafina that the Bills would sell at New Era Field on a Sunday works out to $4.73 if they're charging you $5 a bottle. On the other hand, Seagram's Escapes, okay? Retail, you can get them at the grocery store for $1 for a 12-ounce bottle. Yep, at tops. That works out to a cost of $8, excuse me, $0.08 cents per ounce. At New Era Field, a 16-ounce can of Seagram's Escapes will run you $11. That's $0.69 per ounce. The profit margin for that product after cost is $9.72. Chris, there are signs for water everywhere. Everywhere you walk and you look, you can see a sign telling you, hey, stop, buy a bottle of water. If this team is trying to find money to build a new stadium, why are they not pushing Seagrams? They need to. It tastes, well, it's, you know, has the same amount of alcohol as water. Not as tasty, <laughs> though, and not as refreshing as water. Usually some harsh color. Chris, think about it. With a big enough ad campaign, they could raise the extra revenue to build the new stadium. They could even declare it the... Well, you know what? Seag Seagram's yeah. Field. Yeah, Seagram's is uh, like based out of Rochester, aren't or they? Or New Era Field, the house that Seagram's built. Exactly. I, Sounds like a great plan. Chris, I feel like this idea has legs. It does. <laughs> and we need our audience to help us uh, get this thing going. Jesus. 
Chris, I think it's enough wine cooler talk. All of the listeners who tuned in to hear our guests tonight, they're probably going to think that we're idiots. Why don't we just go ahead and jump into the Bills News Update? Now, Chris, it's funny. If I'm going to end up drinking a Seagram's, you know, for the playoff berth bet that you and I made. In January. Okay. The, the team is going to have to find a way to be healthy. And that's not the case right now. I mean, I think one of the biggest stories that, I mean, it's being talked about, but it's being talked about because training camp gets talked about in this, Chris, can I say this? There are a lot of times when you watch the reporting that's coming out on training camp, and it's almost as if the media latches on to five stories and just runs with those five. And it doesn't matter who you go to, you're getting some amalgamation of the same five stories, maybe six. Is that fair? Yeah, sounds about right. Okay. Well, one of the things that I don't think is getting enough run is the fact that these injuries are piling up on offense. I mean, I know I, I see you know, little anecdotes about them. The Bills came into the preseason program proud of the work that they did, trying to establish all that depth on the offensive line. And now just a week away from the end of camp, you look back at it and you say, if we didn't have that, Chris, I don't even know what we'd be trotting out there on offense. I mean, let me run this down for you. Our, our prize starting center, the highest paid center in the NFL, he is still out with a concussion. Offensive guard uh, Feliciano, shoulder injury. You've got Spencer Long out with the knee. Adrian Waddell in a brutal injury. Torres quad. Torres quad, likely to be sent to the IR. At tight end, you've got Dawson Knox with a hamstring injury who hasn't practiced in almost a week. Or I think over a week now. Same thing with Jason Kroon, our other tight end, who both of whom were vying for the starting job coming into training camp. Both of them out with hamstring injuries still. Our, our, our free agent signing, Tyler Croft at tight end, has a foot injury. He's currently on the pup list. And then offensive lineman Jeremiah Searles. He's got a foot injury. He was already sent to the IR and bought out. I mean, last week when we were talking about the tight end position... I underscored the fact that having a number of missing players, especially guys who are, I don't know, jockeying for a place in the pecking order, that's what you want to call it, it's bad not just for them in terms of their own place in the rotation, but it's bad for the installation of the offense. The offense can't grow if you don't have the, the pieces in place that you need. Chris, I can't plant grass in my front yard if I don't put down topsoil, right? Sounds about right. What do you know about gardening? I'm not, gardening. I'm not a gardening expert <laughs> at all. What are you an expert of? Uh, hair care, dressing well, <laughs> uh, pr- pr- uh, audio production, uh, soon-to-be video production. Oh, Jesus. At the end of the day, the situation is same if you're talking about an offensive line. I'm not trying to throw cold water on the idea that our defensive tackle group, if you've all been paying attention to the headlines coming out of training camp, Everyone is super excited about the job that Ed Oliver and Jordan Phillips are doing in terms of pass rush and that they're harassing the quarterbacks and look at how explosive Ed Oliver looks. Does it occur to anyone out there that their good days have seemingly coincided and they seem to stack up with the sharp decline in health on the offensive line? Chris, I don't know. As someone who's trying to remain as pragmatic about this offseason process as possible, that seems like a bad sign. Uh, yeah, I mean, Oliver's supposed to be 
a top-tier talent, so it's not shocking that he's beating up our second and third team offensive line. Jordan Phillips, if he's doing the same thing, that's a bad sign. <laughs> and that's my point. I mean, when you look, look at what's happened to Cody Ford. I get it. Cody Ford was struggling, okay? And I last, last week I was pounding the table over this idea that it was you leave him out there at right tackle because ultimately that's what you view him as. So sue me. I have an opinion. And I'm sure every Bills fan out there can say, at some point in their lives or another, just because you think something is smart doesn't mean the team's going to listen to you. This is one of those moments. With all of these injuries, and I'm assuming some of the ineffectiveness of guys like Russ Bodine, that's probably leading to the fact that now Cody Ford's been shifted inside. Chris, Oliver is whipping our backups' asses. As he should. But they're backups. They're not starting NFL caliber players. So they've moved Cody Ford inside, and they've put Ty and Secchi at right tackle. I know for a lot of you listening to this right now, this represents the best offensive line combination available if Morris were healthy. I mean, Chris, how many times did you see pundits, fans, didn't matter who was talking, said that their starting five would be Dawkins at left tackle, Spain at left guard, Mitch Morris at center, Cody Ford at guard, and Ty Insecki at right tackle. I saw that a lot today on Twitter when I had the, the time to look. Uh, I'm, I'm just baffled because when you look at the Sabres, because this is how i got to make my comparisons here, is because I follow hockey more than football. You know, they drafted Sam Reinhart to be a center, and then they moved him out to the wing, and he hasn't been back. So I assume if you're going to move Cody, Cody Ford inside to guard, he's not coming back to tackle at all. Well, I guess that's my point. I mean, Chris, you of all people know, I was high on Ty Inseki. Yes. He was my, he was my, you know, he was the guy. As every year, I hit on one of these fringe free agents that I think fit the team and they go out and sign him. Well, th- he was my guy this year. Okay. I just don't agree with it. I- I'll say this. If circumstances dictate that things are so thin on the interior of the offensive line that Ford would be left alone with a backup caliber right guard next to him playing tackle and trying to learn how to play the position, I think it would end a lot worse than Dawkins did last year with an inexperienced... I shouldn't even say inexperienced because Vlad DaCosta wasn't inexperienced. He just had one of the worst seasons ever recorded for a left guard. Yeah, he just sucked. So I feel like that's what you would be setting Cody Ford up for. If you left him out there like that. And I understand that what you're doing is you're you're fitting a need. You say, look, I need interior offensive linemen. I have a good tackle. I might as well play my best five. But in a perfect world, is a 34-year-old right tackle long-term. Long-term, Chris. If that's your projection for Cody Ford, that he can be your right tackle. Do you want to then move him inside and go into potentially next season knowing you still have to address that position? No, if you want to, if you want Cody Ford to be right tackle, you play him at right tackle. You don't move him inside and then back outside. That sounds stupid. Well, not only that, but then you think about what the right tackle position costs in today's NFL. Look at uh, who was the tackle from the Patriots. Oh yeah. Oh no, 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 not the Patriots. The Miami Dolphins. Juwan James. Yep. He is going to the he's going to the Broncos to be their right tackle, and he's one of the highest paid offensive linemen in football because teams understand that. Your studs have to be on the outside, and you're going to pay those guys. You need two stud tackles now. 
in today's NFL with the way offenses operate, with the way everything's designed. So this move of Cordy, Cody Ford, I keep wanting to call him Cordy Glenn, and I don't know why. It's crazy to me. Maybe because we're talking about a guard playing tackle. But, Chris, I, I get it, okay? I just think that moving him inside, it doesn't do good things for his long-term development, and it leaves you in a position where next season you're probably looking at having to go out and find another right tackle. But at the end of the day, Chris, you and I both know, as long as Josh Allen stays upright, I guess I can't bitch too much, can I? You know what sucks? Having to eat crow on your own podcast. (laughs) You're going to be doing a lot of that this year. I hope so, Chris. I really hope so. Every single offseason we talk about this. Any football fan knows the easiest way to make the playoffs is to win your division. And in the AFC East, that's proven to be, Chris, a damn near Herculean task for anybody outside of Foxborough, Massachusetts. Despite that, I always think there's value in knowing what's going around, just going on around the division. And thus, I'm always curious to pick the brains of the best and some of the brightest, you know, in terms of bloggers, podcasters, and other people out there just so I myself know what's going on in terms of our divisional opponents. So it's with that that we kick off 2019's AFC East training camp edition of the Roundup Series with the New York Jets. And we have a guest tonight who's going to just help us just walk through all of this with Mr. Joe Caparoso. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thank you for coming. Guys, there's a lot of you out here in the Bills fan base who probably don't know who Joe is, but I also guess that you're probably not actively trying to seek out Jets content. If you were, I'd be shocked if you didn't. First of all, he works for, and I have to ask about this, SVP of content for Whistle Sports. Why don't you explain what Whistle Sports is to me? Uh, so Whistle Sports is a sports entertainment company that solely distributes their video content through social media platforms. Uh, been around for about eight years. I've been a whistle for six of those eight years. Um, our, our goal and our target audience is millennial and Gen Z males. We focus on brand safe, inspirational, motivational content. Uh, and yeah, we've been growing well over the past few years. It's been a fun run there. Um, been my full time job since 2000, God, 2013. Now, uh, and yeah, I supervise all of our video content across YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, all that good stuff. Uh, we have a lot of different original productions uh, in partnership now with the different social platforms and other different brands uh, for branded content that we roll out. So I actually was able to initially get my foot in the door and go through the work I was doing independently for Turn the Jets back in the day. Well, and that's, I guess, what br- what brought us here tonight, was TurnOnTheJets.com. You are the owner of the website. You you now work with Joe Blewett, who our listeners will remember has been our kind of go-to for Jets information over the last few years. And now, I mean, I think that you guys have grown over the last few years into something. Now you've got multiple podcasts. You've got multiple bloggers and writers who work for you. You guys are putting out a ton of content over there. And a lot of it, when you read the articles... I don't get the sense that it's you know the normal Homer stuff that you might get from an SB Nation type website. I mean, why don't you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, we've always tried to kind of have our own sort of lane and own voice and style when covering the team. I, the site started about ten years ago. It was actually part of a now defunct blog network called uh, it was like Fanball. It was under NBC Sports, and every pro team had their own. Uh, 
uh, independent blog. So I was running the Jets blog because I was doing some freelance writing before that. Some, you know, some guy reached out to me. I did it for about a year. And then the network shut down, but with the help of a couple other people I was working with, I was able to transfer all, transfer ownership over to myself. At the time, our, you know, sort of our somewhat ironic tagline was that we were in a position to civilize, basically, Jets coverage. Because at the time, there was all the craziness with Rex Ryan and all these ridiculous stories about his, uh, you know, Rex Ryan fetish and his wife having tattoos <laughs> on Mark Sanchez. That's what a lot of the coverage was about, and we really just wanted to do film breakdowns, you know, talk about more sort of X's and O's and clicks and things like that. You know, we started to cite right when the team was good for those two years. And since then, they've been on this eight-year playoff drought, but we've fortunately still been able to uh, grow. And we, yeah, we try to move away or don't do sort of the traditional, you know, countdowns, lists, or predict a team to win the Super Bowl every single year. I think we're, we're pretty pragmatic in how we cover them and recognizing that, They've been one of the worst teams in football the past two years. We hate that, but we're going to call them out on it and hopefully uh, criticize them in a way that's reasonable and give them credit when they do things we think are smart and go after them when they do things that we don't think are smart. And You know, Joe does a really good job getting deep into the film and it breaks down on all the different players and all the different games on a rolling basis. Uh, we also do a lot of stuff with uh, you know, analytics with some of our podcasts, and we'll just do more sort of deep dives into the state of the organization, the state of the coaching staff, the state of the roster. I've built out a pretty good web of uh, consistent podcasts and article series and a nice little follow, uh, following predominantly on Twitter. And it, this has been uh, a very interesting and active offseason, no doubt. I think you know, we were very, very critical of the old regime and happy that the Jets made the changes that they did, and hopefully it results in some more success. Well, that's, I guess, where we start this conversation. And if we're talking about the New York Jets, you want to talk about this. I mean, I guess and that's where I like to start the conversation with every team. The biggest offseason storyline. And for you guys, it's the overhaul that just took place in your front office. I mean, first of all, for me personally, it's crazy to sit here now and look back on the Todd Bowles era and to think that his high watermark was losing what should have been a winnable, winnable football game on the road in Buffalo to a bunch of backup defensive players and this smug jackass named Rex Ryan. So <laughs> since then... That was a very tragic loss. <laughs> it was a tough day for a Jet fan from the last, because that's such a fun, random, surprising season. I don't think anyone had really high expectations going in. <laughs> uh, and the fact that they were in position to make the playoffs after beating the Patriots... Uh, and overtime the week before, and then basically crap the bed. Uh, in Buffalo, with Ryan Fitzpatrick turning to the quarterback, we all know that he is, was a brutal end to the season, obviously. The thing about the Bulls and McCagney now is if you take away that sort of random one-off five-game winning streak, uh, it was all very bad. I mean, that was they were 24-40 and 40 over four years. You take away that five-game winning streak where they beat four really bad teams and a Patriots team who wasn't really playing all their starters – uh, it, it was a tough stretch, absolutely. That loss to Buffalo uh, was particularly tough because if they won that game, they would have played A.J. McCown in the first round. I think that would have been a really winnable game. and Who could have been an interesting play? playoff run for that team, which despite Fitzpatrick had Brandon Marshall and Eric Decker, Darrell Reeves, uh, and another veteran piece of pretty watered-down AFC that year where I think most fans felt like they could have made an interesting run in the playoffs. So this is one of the things I think is crazy. First, you have the firing of Todd Bowles. I mean, pretty much everyone knew that was coming by the time the season ended. But from there, that's where things get kind of murky. 
I mean, you've got McCagnan, who I understand he's your he's your GM. He's had a handful of years of questionable drafts. I mean, I, he's the man who drafted two quarterbacks who I think combined for just a handful of NFL starts, but he drafted them in like the first four rounds. I, Hackenberg is probably the most glaring one of those. But I think the thing people find unorthodox is the fact that he was allowed to oversee the hiring of a new head coach, oversee this these massive expenditures in free agency, and spend another year with the draft capital, and then follow Todd Bowles into the unemployment line. <laughs> Along with what people here, I mean, people compared it to the Julius Caesar saga in terms of back, you know, kind of back channeling and backstabbing and things that were going on there. It sounds crazy, but I have to ask you, how much of that is the New York media dramatizing it? I mean, honestly, this is what turned me on to you the most was hearing your appearance on appearance on WFAN, kind of touching on this subject. What do you think? I think, look, I think the initial timing of the firing was, was surprising. I think a lot of us, myself included, thought he 100% should have just been fired with Todd Bowles at the end of the season. Uh, they didn't do that. He led the head coaching search and was, along with Brian Heimerdinger, the guy who decided to hire Adam Gates, and they, they had an active offseason. They paid a lot of money for Le'Veon Bell. They paid a lot of money for C.J. Mosley. They made trade for Clutching Assembly. They signed Jamison Crowder. And then he ran the draft. You know, and there were some rumblings about some discord. And that, that's fairly common, I guess unsurprising, considering Gase's personality and the fact that McCagnan really had been good at his job now. I thought, like many, that that basically just meant he'd be on a short leash and maybe Gase was currying a little more favor in the building or like maybe they get rid of his number two, a guy like Brian Heimerdinger. Uh, but then they just move quick and fire him. And it really sounds like there was a internal struggle in a power play that Adam Gase won. The Jets then went on their GM search and got a guy that a lot of people are excited about them hiring, Joe Douglas. It's impossible to predict what GM is going to be good, just like it's sometimes hard to predict what head coach is going to be good. But Douglas was one of those names that you regularly saw on the top of the next sort of wave of GMs and guys who were considered a top-tier candidate. And a guy that Jet fans were talking about in December uh, if they did actually go ahead and fire McCagnan at that time. So the timing and the messaging around the process, I think, was going to lead to a bit of a firestorm and questions about Adam Gase maybe having too much power for a guy who really hasn't had a ton of success so far. I do think ultimately the Jets nutted out getting a candidate that on paper they should feel good about, who's made some other hires to his front office that they should feel good about. Now, is that going to work out? You know, we're going to see. I mean, Timmy Gase or... They, everything is buddy-buddy right now, but obviously they sort of came in at different timelines. They're on different length contracts. So if the team struggles this year or next year, where does that blame ultimately go? But I do think you know, that overall the Jets substantially up upgraded their front office because they really had one of the worst front offices in the NFL. And at least you know with Joe Douglas, he was with the Super Bowl-winning team with the Eagles. He spent a lot of time with the Ravens, an organization that's had a lot of well, and that's he's I guess people over that he's worked with previously. I mean, I uh, guess I, I, I guess I have to put it in the right direction. I, I guess if I had to say anything about this, though, and I want to say this because I'm, I've been watching it, I understand that the the knee jerk reaction from Bills fans is to throw mockery their way. What Bills fans should take a step back and recognize is that we did almost the same thing. We brought in a brand <laughs> yeah. new head coach with our old GM still in the building. 
And then the day after the draft, the GM and his entire scouting staff got <laughs> got released. That's a thing that happened. And they brought in a GM who kind of had a shared vision and some familiarity with that coach. It's not an unheard of concept. So I understand that from an outsider's perspective, it's easy to poke fun at it. But the fact is, is that it's not unheard of. I mean, I guess if I had any surprise, it's that Adam Gase, Adam Gase, recently failed head coach of the Miami Dolphins and owner of the craziest facial expressions in the NFL. I would, I would challenge any other coach in football to that. But when you look at it, it's not that much of a stretch to see because the Bills did kind of the same thing. We went out, got a coach, got a GM that that coach is familiar with and brought him in the building because you think, okay, let's get some guys who have a shared vision rather than two people who are just trying to figure out how to work together because it's going to waste so much time building a team. So with that said, I want to talk a little bit about the team. Okay, This year, with new, uh, totally new coaching staff, things are going to change for New York. I think one of the things that I've seen the most is that, and I think has been the most prevalent in New York City in terms of the way the team plays football, is a 3-4 defense. The Jets have been known for playing a 3-4 defense, whether it was under Rex Ryan, whether it was under Todd Bowles, at least going back the last five or six seasons. So I guess my question to you is now that you've got Greg Williams, I mean, the guy who said that he could have a head coaching job anytime he wanted one and yet is still a defensive coordinator. What does his inclusion in the coaching staff mean for this Jets defense? I mean, it's a fair question. I think the hope is that the Jets, like many teams, are going to be multiple and flexible with how they use their personnel groupings. They're going to spend a lot of time at nickel, so really breaking down the three, four is ultimately not going to become that important as they still have a lot of personnel that would fit more naturally in the 3-4, which is why I think they were pretty aggressive and publicly saying that that's still going to be the base system because they have Harry Anderson, they have Jordan Jenkins, they have Leonard Williams. Uh, they have these guys who they you know, say have invested into playing that system who are you know, still carrying over onto the roster this year. So I think the hope is that Williams is smart enough to be multiple and put players in the best spot to succeed. I think, you know, Williams is the kind of guy that I think the bark is a little louder than the bite right now. I think Jet fans are excited about him because he has a lot of fun clips and he's got a lot of, you know, energy compared to what they have with Todd Bowles. I'm not sure if the resume as a defensive coordinator, at least in recent years, really backs up the thinking that he is this elite defensive coordinator who's going to solve any personnel problems they have because I do think they have a decent amount on defense starting at the cornerback position, even with some questions at edge rusher. Uh, but my hope is that, look, they have Jamal Adams, they have C.J. Mosley, they just drafted Quentin Williams, the, you know, the third pick in the draft. Leonard Williams is still there. So there's some very talented pieces. Hopefully they're smart in how they can compensate for some of their deficiencies is they really lack top-tier pass rusher, and they have a lot of questions at cornerbacks. Though. I'll, I'll tell you this. You guys, and this is the thing that, honestly, if I, I'm not just trying to butter your bread because you're here. I mean, this is my show. This is my show. I don't have to pander to you. I am terrified of one aspect of the Jets' defense, just, just schematically. And that's the fact that for Greg Williams, for me, you pointed to the fact that maybe his rankings in terms of overall defense haven't been great over the course of the last couple of years. But if there's anything we know we're going to get from him, it's aggression. The blitz schemes that he, he rolls out, they're incredibly complex. 
They're enough to give the savviest offensive coordinator headaches. And that's the thing that terrifies me about this. I mean, I've watched him in this in the course of one drive dial up an A-gap blitz combined with a slot corner blitz just in case the quarterback tried to roll out of the pocket. And then other times what he'll do is he'll throw a couple he'll throw a defensive end and a linebacker in a zone so that he can blitz both of his outside corners. He throws stuff at you that you'd think to yourself, only a madman would do this. For a team like the Jets, who, you know, obviously there's been a lot made about the quality of your cornerback group, but that's a way to make these athletes stand out without having to ask them to do things, is you just make them blitzers. And that, that scares the hell out of people. Now, on offense, Adam Gase's offense is complicated. I mean, the only time it's ever worked is when he had a Hall of Fame signal caller and a top-flight offensive line. What, when you saw in Miami, the quarterback was mediocre and the offensive line never panned out, and his offense never really got up off the ground. You could see what he was trying to do. It's predicated on a lot of throws outside the numbers, which is designed to get players in space with screens and checkdowns and short area passes, and it has the ability to make defenses impatient. It forces them to get up to the line of scrimmage because they're afraid of a short play, it leaves them vulnerable to the big one over the top. In your opinion, do you guys have the personnel currently in 2019 to execute that style of offense? Look, I actually feel better. I'm a little more high on the offense than the defense at this point, which is very rare for the Jets. But I've been forever since I've been alive. I think they're really good about how Sam Donald led to this. I like what they did with the slot receiver upgrade of going from someone like Jermaine Curse, who stunk, to Jameson Crowder, who really feels like sort of the perfect type of receiver for what Adam Gase likes to do. Robbie Anderson came out very strong down the stretch with Darnold last year, and if he could ever stay healthy, Quincy Adua is a nice complimentary piece to those guys. Never mind rookie Chris Herndon had an encouraging year last year, but he's, of course, suspended for four games now. That doesn't even touch on what Le'Veon Bell should bring is both a runner and a receiver. So I think on paper, there's a lot to be excited about potentially with this year at the skill positions. And I do think they should be good for Darnold and help him improve his completion percentage and will you know, allow him to attack outside the numbers and hopefully get him on the move a little bit to compensate for some of the Jets' questions on the offensive line. Uh, I think, I, I, yes, I think Darnold is a more talented guy than Ryan Tannehill. Is he ready to be Peyton Manning? 2014 or whatever season that was, probably not. And there's still going to be turnovers and some rough patches, sure. Um, I think the thing is, when you have Bell and you have Anderson, when Herndon comes back and you have Crowder, this needs to be a unit that can consistently put up points. And it's just something that they couldn't do consistently even when Donald was healthy last year. And they, when they won, they ended up being these. You see this with the Jets. They just can't win shootouts at a consistent volume. You've got to score points in today's NFL. The offensive dominated league. The offense, in my mind, is more important than your defense uh, with how things work right now. So, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't say that too loudly. There's Bills fans. Don't say that too loudly. There's Bills fans listening to that, and they might get upset. If you try to remind Bills fans that offense is more important than defense, people here are going to get really emotional. You got to, you know, you look at the teams that are in the playoffs and their DVOA ranking, you know, how teams are winning and, you know, how really you're going to beat New England. Uh, you don't score them. Like, I think the thought that, like, you're going to go back to what the Giants did, you know, five years ago and eight years ago and just, you know, pummel Tom Brady and beat them 17 14, I don't think that's going to really happen right 
how quick, how they <laughs> spread out and how quick he gets rid of the football. Um, you got to score points. And, you know, I'm not crazy that Gase brought along Dowell Loggins and some of his other formal coach, coaching buddies. I can tell you that. Uh, I was not crazy about the hire when it happened. Now, of course, uh, he's not going to try to find ways to rationalize it and be excited about it. I think he has a, a ton, of proof, ton to prove, though. Um, and he should be on, you know, he's been a head coach now. This is going to be his fourth straight year of being a head coach in the <laughs> AFC. He's had two losing seasons in the last two years. There's a lot of money that was put into this roster. Fans' expectations are high, maybe a little higher than they realistically should be, but this can't be another six and ten or you know seven and nine even season. Well, one of the, their schedule is people expect this team to be five hundred or better. Well, one of the biggest things that's going to help you guys get there is your recent draft class. Now, after this year's draft, I recall listening to another one of your radio spots over at WFAN. And I was surprised to hear that you weren't exactly thrilled with this year's class as a whole. Now, I can tell our listeners till I'm blue in the face about Quinn and Williams. I'm an Alabama fan. I watch all of their games. I've, I've been to watch the kid's whole career. You've got to be excited about what he's going to bring you in terms of just, just a presence in the center of that defensive line. Beyond Quinn and Williams, what are your expectations for the rest of this draft class in terms of their production in 2019? I mean, I saw something the other day, Ja'Kai Polite. He was a guy that everyone talked about as far as, oh, I can't believe he fell that far. He was being talked about as a fringe first, maybe second round pick. I've heard he's running with the third team. I think, you know, I think with a guy like Polite, we were all excited that, you know, the third round, it's a, you're getting to the point where you're kind of throwing darts a little bit. For him to still be on the board, I think it was a pleasant surprise and, you got to remember he's 21 years old. So I think the thought that, look, oh, the Jets fixed their edge rusher problem by dropping Clay in the third round. Well, maybe in 2020 or 2021. I don't know if in 2019 he's going to have eight to ten sacks. Uh, I could see him being a guy who starts out running with the twos or threes and gradually gets more and more playing time and by the back half of the year is making an impact and has, I don't know, four or five sacks as a rookie and looks really good going into next year. Uh, I don't know if he's going to be the sack leader for the team this year and immediately solve their edge rushing problems. I think, you know, Chuma Doga, I think the thought is he's going to be one of their top backup tackles this year and doesn't really have to play. And then it's maybe more of a target to start in 2020. Um, Blake Cashman is going to be either the top or the second backup at inside linebacker and probably a court initial teamer, but he'll be on 53. You know, Trevin Wesco really drafted more for his blocking. He'll be the number two or number three tight end. I don't think he's going to be overly involved in the passing game. There's too many other people above him in the pecking order. And then uh, Blasson Austin was really, you know, a complete dart throw in the sixth round, a guy who really hasn't played at all over the past couple of years who will probably spend the season on the IR, the, you know, the pup list to start at least. So, look, I think if Quentin Williams lives up to the hype and the expectations, he's going to be in conversations for defensive rookie of the year. And if he gets some sacks out of play, maybe a spot start here out of there, out of the Doga, that's the worst thing in the world. I think a lot of these guys, though, are going to be more prompt to have an impact in 2020. Okay, so this was a draft class that was more for next year. So right now you're kind of working with what you have on hand in terms of NFL experience. So I guess at that point, my question becomes the biggest acquisition of the offseason. When you look at it, the Buffalo Bills had a ton of cap space coming into this offseason. But we weren't alone. It was you guys, us, and the Colts who had the most money. And we were out there, and everyone, we were linked to every potential free agent because that's what people do. You know, these pundits got to get paid. 
<laughs> they have to write things that people will click on and read. So both of our teams were linked to essentially every free agent that I would say at least two-thirds of the positions on the field. For you guys, you guys did make some moves. I mean, you made moves, albeit at positions that I sometimes question. I got to ask you, in your opinion, what what was the biggest acquisition of the offseason for this Jets team? I mean, I'm bullish again on the offense being more important than the defense, and that Sam Donald is the most important person in the organization. The most important, it's been important person that's been in the organization for a long time. So you do everything you can to make his life easier, particularly when he's on his rookie contract, which gives you sort of that rare luxury to go spend a lot of money on a running back, which normally I would not advocate for. The Jets are not in a normal situation with how much cap space they had, having a quarterback on a rookie contract, uh, and having Bill actually be available and be a player who could not just help in the running game but catch 70, 80 passes next year and make Sam Darnold that much better potentially next year and even for the, you know, the few years after that. So even if Bell is 85% of the player he was in Pittsburgh, that's basically the best offensive skill position player the Jets have had since Curtis Martin. And it's going to make Sam Darnold a lot better uh, as a young developing quarterback. So I think it was worth the risk. Yes, it's more than you normally would want to pay for a running back, but the way the contract structure is not something that is going to be crippling the Jets for years and years and years to come. I mean, for whatever reason, this doesn't work out. They could pretty do two years without destroying the cap. And I think, look, I mean, from everything we've seen and heard, Bell looks like he's in shape. And again, I don't. Is he going to be the exact same player he was in Pittsburgh? No, probably not. He's not going to have Antonio Brown. Schuster, Dick Ben, and all these other guys in a more established infrastructure, but can he go out and catch 70, 75 passes, run for 1,100 yards, and have eight or nine total touchdowns? Yeah, and that's a lot better than what the Jets had a running back last year, which was arguably one of the worst positional groups in the league uh, with what that group was by the time the season ended. So I think he ultimately will make the biggest impact. So then I have to ask, I mean, I know when you're talking about a when, you, when you're talking about a team that win, wins fewer than five games in a single season, you're probably not sorry to see a lot of the players that you lose go. <laughs> you probably, I mean, we've, trust me, as a Bills fan, we've been through this before. When you watch these teams just churn out players and people leave and everyone goes, oh no, we lost so and so. And you laugh because it doesn't matter. He was a part of this terrible team. And then you watch him wash out of football and it doesn't matter. Who do you think was the biggest loss of the offseason for the Jets? Who was one of the guys who left the roster that actually makes, in your opinion, an impact? Well, I can tell you it wasn't Spencer Long, unfortunately, for your your Bills dad. I just spit uh, beer on my shirt. That's fucking hilarious. (laughs) Uh, I will not miss him. Uh, (laughs) But beyond that, you know, there's not one individual player that really jumps out, but it's kind of what they decide to do with their special team units. The Jets had an all-pro kick returner last year, who you guys now have. They had an all-pro kicker last year. Uh, they had a guy who blocked their first two punts in six years, uh, and they had a guy in Terrence Brooks who led the team and tackled. All four of those guys were allowed to walk, and I understand the thought that, look, there's some churn at those positions, and they're replaceable, but the Jets had the number one ranked unit, DBLA unit on special teams last year. Now, kicker is a question mark with Chandler Catanzaro, who's up and down. Returner job is wide open. Uh, you don't have Kevin Pierre-Lewis, who blocked two punts last year, and you don't have Brooks, who had you in tackle last year. So 
can that unit take a really big step back? Yeah, I think so. Uh, and just assuming that Brett Boyer is going to be, you know, Mike Westhoff 2.0 and solve everything, it might be a bit naive because he was a special teams coach in 2017 too, and the unit was really bad. Now last year it was really good. So we, you know, it's kind of a coin flip on what we're going to get this year with an entire new cast of characters out there. Well, I'll say this. Just to show you I do my homework when it comes to our opponents, I know you guys in New York might be worried about Catanzaro. I, I mean, the, the guy got fired from Tampa. He had less than 75% of his kicks, and then they fired him. You guys bring him back. But here's the thing. Under your current special teams coordinator, every kicker they have they, that, that he's had under his tutelage has posted career numbers. Career numbers. To the point that he accounts for almost a 10% uptick in conversion percentage. That's craziness. I don't know what kind of voodoo that guy has, what kind of shaman. I I don't know what kind of rain dance he's doing back there. But the kickers for the Jets tend to get, anybody who comes from any other team and comes to the Jets, tends to do better there than anywhere else they've been before. So you have that going for you in that capacity. I'll also say, though, that the loss of Andre Roberts is pretty sweet because I remember being at the game and watching us. We score, we think the game's close, and then Roberts runs back a punt, and essentially you're on our doorstep and you score a few plays later, and we never get the lead back. I remember that. (laughs) I do. And so with that said, it's going to be interesting to see how that position unit squares up. So now, you mentioned the special teams unit, and it's kind of a wide-ranging thing when you talk about position groups. You're talking about one that you think is going to be weak. Is that the weakest on the team in terms of the roster's areas of weakness, or is there, are there other places that you think the Jets are more vulnerable in terms of the overall talent of the roster? I mean, I think there's two that stand out. I think any Jet fan would give you these two positions. I think it's cornerback, and I think it's offensive line. So I think cornerback, Tremaine Johnson stunk last year, and cornerbacks usually don't get better with age, even when they're reunited with their old defensive coordinator. Uh, and then they basically decided to start their backup cornerback from the past few years, Darrell Roberts, opposite of him. But there's no proof he could be a competent 16-game starter. They swapped out Buster Screen for Brian Poole, who had a really good rookie year and it kind of fell off a little bit the past couple of years. The Falcons don't walk. Uh, and outside of that, they have absolutely no depth. So if they have one injury, they're going to basically be playing someone who has no NFL experience at all. Um, so one injury, and, you know, Johnson missed six, seven games last year. It's going to be a really ugly situation at that position group unless they make another move for a veteran. And that offensive line, I think we all feel better now that they have Ryan Khalil instead of Jonathan Harrison. But, you know, Khalil was in retirement. There's no guarantee that he's going to be the all-pro player he was, you know, a few years back. I think the hope is he could just kind of help bridge the gap until they get a long-term answer. But, you know, even outside of him, Ryan Winters average at best. And then Brandon Shell has been banged up a lot in his average at best. There's really no one on that unit who is elite. You know, Pelagio Assembly was a few years ago, but he's coming off an injury. He's got to prove that he can get back to that level. And, uh, I just don't know if that unit has proven enough yet to feel really good about it. Because the rest of that offense, I think there's a lot of intriguing talent on paper. Well, I guess that's the thing. You know, we talked about it on, on this show a handful of times, about how the Jets and the Bills are going to be really interesting to watch in terms of roster building. 
Because one franchise went out and took all their free agent money and put it into skill positions. Wide receiver, running back, linebacker. You soaked up a lot of that money you had at the, I guess, flash positions. The Bills took theirs and invested it all in the big uglies. The guys who run around up front and act like human battering rams. And it's essentially what makes more sense in today's modern NFL. Can you still win by building the trenches from the outside in? That's, I guess, my point. Inside out. Or the way you guys did it from the skill positions and then just figure out the rest of those things as they come. And maybe that maybe that does, I guess, deserve some, cre- some credence. When you think about the Rams' offense, they have a very good offensive line. Then you think about the Chiefs' offense. They have a very good offensive line. But they also have a massive investment in their skill position players. And you see what those offenses can be when that works. So I guess... Maybe that's the thing is you strengthen the things around the O-line and maybe it can pick that up. I mean, where would you say the strength of the Jets roster is right now? Well, I think up the middle on defense, you, you should feel really good about the talent they have with Quentin Williams, Leonard Williams, C.J. Mosley, to a lesser extent, Avery Williams and Jamal Adams. I think, you know, up the middle, they're going to be really strong. The question is, how are they going to be on the perimeter? And then I think... You know, again, the group of pass catchers, I guess it's the best way to categorize it, I think can be very good. Le'Veon Bell, Robbie Anderson, Jameson Crowder, Chris Herndon when he's back from suspension, Quincy Inouye, I don't even time Montgomery, I think is a top six option in the passing game. It's pretty good, uh, particularly if Herndon builds on last year, Inouye can stay healthy. I like the range of skills that all those guys have. Bell, obviously, a former All-Pro. Robbie Anderson has been close to 1,000 yards a few times, but has also been stuck with playing with Bryce Petty and Josh McCown for long periods of time, so I don't know the hump. You know, he's seen Crowder have a couple of years where he's been a 70-75 catch guy. So I feel good about that group of pass catchers, particularly compared to where it was last year, and I do think up the middle on defense, you know, Adams is an All-Pro, Mosley's an All-Pro, Williams, in many people's mind, was the best player in the draft this year. So I think they should be solid in that portion of their defense. You're depressing me, Joe. I thought we came here to find things out, not to have you make me feel bad. Because honestly, I'm that scares me. Because the thing that killed the Bills last year was pitch and catch offense and make our defense tackle. I mean, hell, we got blown out the first two weeks. I mean, the Chargers and the, the Ravens blew us off the map. And between both quarterbacks, they only attempted three passes of more than 10 yards downfield. So this scheme combined with that position group scares the shit out of me. When you look at your roster, who has to improve from 2018 to now for your team to succeed? And I feel like I already know what the answer is. I mean, Darnold is the key thing to everything, right? If Darnold has a goth, went ask like jump, then a lot of these other question marks aren't really going to matter that much, and the Jets could absolutely win 10 games. If he has like a little bit of a jump, they're probably going to win like seven or eight games, and if he kind of flatlines from last year, they're probably going to win five or six games. Adam Gase is going to get fired because he was brought here. It <laughs> makes Sam Darnold better not have him flatline from you know, working for Jeremy Bates and Todd Bowles. Now, I don't think there's any reason to believe that Darnold is not going to be better. The question is just how much better. Is he going to throw 35 touchdowns and have 62, you know, complete 62% of his passes and increase his yards per attempt by a yard? 
or is he going to throw 23 touchdowns, so not 17 or you know, end up with 17 or 18 turnovers and look a little better, but not really be all the way there yet. So I, he is he's the guy. He's the you know the real person who will decide is this team actually a wild card contender this year, or are they going to just kind of maybe stay relevant into late November, but then ultimately be a six or seven week team, kind of like Gay supervised the past two years. <laughs> I mean, that would that would scare the hell out of me if I'm a fan of the Jets. So now when we're, I, I guess, and every year what I like to do when I have somebody like you on one of these shows, I try to identify because Bills fans, we're enamored with the team. We try to, I mean, Robert Foster was a guy we saw early and often in last year's preseason. We said, wow, that guy can run, but I don't really, I don't, I don't, he doesn't seem like he can catch. <laughs> so I don't think he's going to make this roster. And then he had a coming out party. I think it was week seven. Week was it week seven or eight against the New York Jets in New York City, where he and Matt Barkley. I think one of the first plays of the game, he catches a sixty-something yard pass over the top of Tremaine Johnson, and it sets the tone for the whole game. And that type of guy, you wouldn't have known if you weren't a part of the fan base. You wouldn't even have known who he was. You would have thought we found him in a parking lot somewhere. So who's a guy like that on the Jets roster this year that your opponents shouldn't be sleeping on? Uh, there's a couple of people who come to mind. I think Deontay Burnett, who is currently their fourth receiver behind the three more well-known guys. He's a second-year player at a USC who played with Darnold, who had a couple of nice moments last year and has had a really strong camp. But if one of those three receivers go down in front of him, he'll get a lot of reps because the Jets' base offense is going to have three receivers out there. He looked like he belonged last year when he got more of an extended look. Um, I think he's a little bit more of a well-known player, but I think Ty Montgomery's had a really strong camp and is going to be really involved, particularly early in the season as the Jets are ramping up Le'Veon Bell's usage. And then defensively, third-year corner Derek Jones is a guy who, if Robert struggles or Johnson gets hurt, is a really good athlete. Looks a little, looks a little, has that Antonio Cromartie athletic build and is someone who might get an extended look at things kind of go off the rails at cornerback next year. So those three guys kind of jump top of mind to me. Okay, that's fair. All right, we're going to commit that to memory, and we're going to come back week one and see how that plays out. So when we look at the start of the regular season, that's the reason I start here. I mean, when you take a look at the regular season, the way the schedule stacks up, it's incredibly important, and I always like to look at the first five games. Now, for the Jets, we're going to go six because I feel like it's important. Your first five games, and you said it yourself earlier, they have to get off to a good start. This is your opening slate, and I don't know if there's a team in our division who has a tougher one. You have Buffalo at home, Cleveland at home. Then you go on the road to play New England week three. You go to Philly. You play Dallas at home, and you get New England. Out of that group, you have four teams who made it to the divisional round of the playoffs in 2018. Two teams... Well, two games against the defending Super Bowl champs, four quarterbacks who averaged 260 or more yards a game in 2018. And it's worth noting that there's only seven teams who ever made it to the postseason after starting one and four since 1978. So when you look at that start, I mean, is it imperative? I mean, I think that underscores the Jets almost don't have a choice but to hit the ground running, correct? Yeah, I mean, look, there's no, there's no reason to sugarcoat it. It's an absolutely brutal start to the 
schedule, and especially with a new regime and personalities like Greg Williams and Adam Gates, uh, where a bad start can really get the fireworks going. Look, the Jets have to beat Buffalo at home week one. You cannot <laughs> lose that game and then be like, well, now we have to play Cleveland, everyone's darling in New England. They, have, they kind of have to win that game. And I think the hope is tread water in those first six, three and three, maybe two and four, and then you look at the next eight, they're pretty soft on paper at least. If you close, you know, Baltimore, Pittsburgh, Buffalo, uh, not extremely brutal, especially when Pittsburgh takes a step back last year. So can you tread water in the first six games and then take advantage of the softer part of the schedule where you play Miami twice, and you play Washington and the Giants and Oakland uh, and uh, Jacksonville, teams who have, you know, struggled last year or should struggle this year, uh, and take advantage of playing Eli Manning, you know, a rookie quarterback like Lee Dwayne Haskins, you know, some of the other guys they'll face in that part of the schedule, but it's, it's a very, very tough start. And if they lose week one at home against Buffalo, they are, they could be looking at a one and five ish type start. They really got to win that game. <laughs> oh, I, I don't mean to hurt your feelings, Joe, but I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. I really am. Outside of that, there's another notable stretch. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> there's another stretch of games here. Week three through nine, you only have two home games. I mean, that's tough. That's a lot of road action, and road teams predominantly do not do well in the NFL. That's just, I mean, there's not a lot of road warriors left. Are you concerned about that playing into this idea that even if they hit the ground, like, hey, we go 50-50 and then we go play these soft teams, a lot of them are on the road. I mean, look, it's not ideal, but they also don't have a lot of travel early in the season. They have a really early bye week uh, to kind of split up some of those difficult games, and you know, they don't have, like, the high volume of West Coast trips. I think they travel the least amount of miles of any NFL team this year. They're in the top, like, three or four for that. There's a lot of East Coast uh, games for them. There's not the multiple going, you know, out to play, you know, the Chargers and the Rams and the uh, So hopefully that helps mitigate uh, the difficulty of some of those road games. Uh, but it's still working. I would be surprised if this happens a lot. If the Jets win one of these early season games, maybe we don't expect them to, and they lose one of these middle-of-the-year games that we expect them to win. So the type of thing where you go out and you upset New England, because Jason's generally been pretty good against New England, but then you give a game back to Miami. That would shock me. Um, hopefully they could avoid that and you know take advantage of beat a team like Miami twice, but you know how hard these AFC games are. The Jets haven't been over 500 in the AFC since the last time they made the playoffs. And I think if they want to be a playoff team, they got to win at least four of their six in the division. And that's exactly why I think exercises like this, what we're doing tonight, is important. Because if you want to make the playoffs, you have to do well in your division. And if you don't, odds are you're probably not making it. If you lose your division and you beat the rest of the NFL, you go over against your division, you, at best, you're 10-6. and six. That's, that's why it's imperative to know what's going on around you. And so now I want your personal takes as we close this out. First of all, individual players, there's a couple questions I have. First of all, Sam Darnold, yardage. Would you take the under or over on him if I told you he 3,200? That's where I set the bar. Given this offense, given the personnel changes around him, do you see Sam Darnold throwing under or over 3,200 yards? I would take the over on 3,200 yards, especially if he plays a full 16 games. Uh, I would go with the over with that fairly confidently. 
Okay. I, I, as a Bills fan, I'm not confident Josh Allen could throw 3,200 yards. I'm not. And I don't think that he should if we're going to win, which is why I asked that question, because I want to see how you feel about your rookie, your second-year quarterback. And then turnovers. Do you think he's going to be higher or lower than 15 in 2018? I mean, I understand what this offense is. I understand that it's a lot of lateral passing. It's a lot of short area game. If you're a guy like Darnold who likes to gamble, I don't know. We take the over on that just because (laughs) he did a really good job protecting the ball when it came to fumbles last year. That was a big concern of him coming out of USC. He really only lost one fumble last year. Feels like that number might pick up to like three-ish maybe this year. Sometimes fumbles are a random thing. I just think with the style that he plays, he's probably always going to be someone who throws between like 11 and 14 interceptions in a season. So I, I think it's it's close, but I, I don't think it's crazy to take the over on that one. I could see him at like you know 15 or 16 total turnovers. Sticking with the under over win total for the New York Jets, according to Westgate, you guys are currently at seven and a half. It's tough. I've kind of gone back and forth over the past couple of months. I'm thinking them to be 7-9 or 8-8. Eight eight. Um, I'm feeling a little more optimistic after they acquired Ryan Khalil. I'm assuming they're going to make at least maybe one other minor move at cornerback, but you still asked me today, I'd say 8-8, eight eight, so that is an over on 7.5. All right, that's fair. That's fair. Final place in the AFC East. I mean, you see, what, you see what's going on around you. You're a smart guy. You watch the other teams, but you have your own opinions. Where do you think the Jets finish in terms of the pecking order in this division? I mean, I really think it's a coin flip between them and Buffalo. I think both of them are going to be either be 7-9 or 8-8. Eight eight. Um, it would not surprise me if the Jets finish in 2nd at 8-8 eight eight, uh, or if that 8-8, eight eight, you know, based on a tiebreaker or something, put them in 3rd. I feel like New England's 11 or 12 wins, and I feel like Miami's 4 or 5 wins. Uh, and I feel like the Jets' bills are both going to be right at 500 going into that week 17 game. Uh, probably the winner of that game ends up being in second place. I don't know whether that ultimately means anything for the wild card race because the AFC is a tough conference this year. Uh, but I think they're neck and neck, really. I think I would say when I look at the two teams, I think Le'Veon Bell himself is the best offensive player. Uh, but I think Buffalo did a nice job adding a lot of different bodies to their offensive line this year. Personally, I do think they're all in. Has a higher ceiling than Allen, so I do like him a little better there, but I think Buffalo will have a better defense. Uh, so I think it's a lot of give and take there. I think they're going to be really tight, and I think week one will be a very close game. But we're all in concert with the idea that Miami sucks, right? Yeah, Miami's going to be bad. They'll have a couple uh-huh. annoying wins, though, thanks to Fitzpatrick, but they're winning four or five games. Fantastic. Joe, as always, you, this is, I love listening to you talk about this stuff because you, like I said, you're a pragmatic Jets fan. I love this. I loved hearing your radio spots, and I'm glad, I'm glad we could get you on the show tonight. Thank you for taking time out of your schedule to make time for us. Uh, Joe, what do you have going on at turnonthejets.com, and where can the people find you on Twitter? Turnonthejets.com will have daily articles and podcasts all the way up. Uh, through the season, all throughout the season, film breakdowns, analysis of all the team's games, and then you can follow me on Twitter at jcaparoso, J-C-A-P-O-R-O-S-O. All right, thanks to Joe Caparoso for joining us, first-time guest. He's on Twitter, again, at jcaparoso, C-A-P-O-R-O-S-O. Chris, I I mean, he seems confident, but there's no way to know how they're going to fare Luckily for everybody, 
We're all about to take the first step in finding out how we do later this week. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, the 2019 preseason is just days away. We are days from kickoff with week one of the 2019 preseason, Buffalo Bills at home versus the Indianapolis Colts. Bills football is back. Well, kind of. So, I mean, not really, but who gives a shit? Oh, the date, Thursday, August 8th, the place, New Era Field in Orchard Park, New York. The time, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard on Channel 7 ABC. Not going to be blacked out just yet. <laughs> Chris, did you ever think this day, I felt like this day wouldn't get here. I really didn't. I said that about my, uh, the day I got divorced. <laughs> it took so long. A year and a half. Finally here. Are you comparing the start to the 2019 season to, to your divorce proceedings? I just did. <laughs> Chris, what have you been doing to fill up your weekends with all this time? I mean, I'm in such a good mood. Such a good mood. I don't even care. What well, have you been I doing? I told you, yeah, I told when you came over tonight, I told you, you know, yesterday I just got annihilated drunk. <laughs> Vodka drinks and I'm watching NFL Network's uh, top tens on, uh, on YouTube. Top 10 uh, Mount Rushmore, top 10 forgotten plays. <laughs> I'm sure there's hundreds of people out there just like you, Chris. And the good news is the wait's over. The Bills are going to kick off their 2019 preseason this week, and you can bet your ass that I'll be watching and probably rewatching. More just because it's some kind of football. <laughs> Chris, I don't know how intently I'm going to be analyzing this game. I'm just pumped that it's back. I'm I've, pumped to see people wearing the Buffalo Bills uniform running around on a football field. I have videos on my phone from like three preseasons ago of you just getting amped up. It's like, <laughs> calm down, it's preseason. Was that before the Baker Mayfield uh, Browns game? No, this is like two or three years ago. Preseason. Still got him on my phone. Thank God we have a podcast, Chris, or I'd still be that foaming at the mouth idiot. Not to say that I'm not now. So with that said, guys, there are going to be a handful of things that I'm going to be interested in seeing. And I I don't know. I think they're worth talking about. First of all, with all of the reports coming out of training camp, so much of them have been focused on a small handful of topics. I mean, what, Chris? The cornerback competition... Uh, Ed Oliver, everything he's done to kind of move up the depth chart. Now he's taking first team reps. Trent Murphy and the fact that he's been whipping every tackle's ass they put in his way. There really hasn't been a whole uh, the wide the wide receivers at the top of the depth chart, and you know some mention of this Nick Easley kid. Injuries. Am I missing anything, Chris? Have there been any major storylines or anything else you've heard of? Robert Foster is going to get cut. That's what I see on Twitter. Yeah. So that's what I think of that idea. No, with that, there are some things here that I don't think are being paid attention to, and there really isn't a whole lot of discussion regarding a number of defensive topics. Okay, first and foremost, the deployment and arrangement of our safety group. Chris, outside of our top two, it's kind of a mystery right now, at least to me. When you take a look at this, Micah Hyde's got a neck injury. I'm sure they're going to play it safe with him, especially considering the rash of injuries already plaguing the team. 
Jordan Poyer, you know what you're getting from that guy. If he he'll probably dress, but I wouldn't. If they play him, hey, that that's up to you. I don't think it's a good idea. What I'm looking forward to seeing is the rotation of the safeties that we have left on the roster because it's going to give us an idea of how they have the depth chart organized as of today. It's going to give us an opportunity to see where the staff might have them ranked after a few weeks of training camp. I mean, Chris, Saran Neal, you know, we hear talk about him. The only things I've ever heard is the occasional blurb about him coming down and playing cornerback. Outside of that, I have no idea what the hell he's been doing. What role is it that they're trying to carve out for him? Is it experimental at this point? And if so, who is he ex- Who is he in competition with for playing time? Kirk Coleman. Safety, just added to the roster. But there's an established relationship, not just between the player and the coach, in terms of him and McDermott you know, as a defensive coordinator, but also between him and McDermott's scheme. How much run are they going to give Coleman... And is he just a body that they brought in because they were getting thin at the position? Or are they actually going to try to give him a chance to make this roster? I think Thursday, where he starts, you're going to get a better feel for that. And then one of my favorite guys, on, as far as this preseason process goes on the defense, Mo Alexander. I've heard him referred to as a linebacker, despite all of his previous playing experience coming at safety. And at times, he's played at a very high level at safety. Chris, you know what it makes me think of? Do you remember Mark Barron? Yes. Okay. He was a highly drafted safety out of Alabama whose career was just flaming out. He goes to the Rams and they move him to linebacker. And he immediately just becomes a player for that team. He's making impact plays. Okay? Okay. I don't know what kind of role they have in store for Mo Alexander, but when you look at it, I don't know. He seems like a highly talented guy. I don't know why I'm not hearing his name more. So the question for me is, is he a linebacker? Is he a safety? Is he a spe- just a special teams ace? Or do they have some kind of hybrid role that I, I can't even think of right now? I'm going to be looking to see if I can find some answers to that. And what about this rookie, Chris? Sixth-round kid. Uh, what is it, Jaquan Johnson? No press. I don't think I've heard his name once. Is he just not acclimating to the scheme? Is he, Or is he just not getting any look from the coaching staff? I didn't even know that that was a person that we drafted. You could have <laughs> might as well made that name up. No idea who that is. What I know is the safety group is something I'm going to be watching closely. Because think about it. How safety is just a strong component to this defensive system. And this position group, Chris, think about it. We're going to go into this game probably not seeing our top two options at the safety group. And we could still feel the better safety tandem than at least five or six teams in the NFL right now. So I want to see what that depth looks like. Okay, And we should be able to see it because I don't want to see Poyer or Hyde near the field at all. Absolutely not. And also, sticking with the defense, where the hell has Voshan Joseph been? Bueller. 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 Fucking right, Bueller. I mean, on top of the lack of safety news, not a whole lot's been said about the contribution of this year's, what, fourth or fifth round pick at the linebacker position? 
I mean, Chris, for fuck's sake, if you Google his name and look at the news tab, the last mention of Voshan Joseph in the, the that Google can find in an article, it's not even about the Buffalo Bills. It's an article about the 2019 University of Florida defense. <laughs> I mean, that's, I, I'm interested to see why. He's going to have to get some playing time. Yeah, I, I doubt they're going to leave Tremaine and Milano out there for very long. And like Reggie Ragland last season, I'm going to be interested to see not just what his game looks like, but what it might be that's holding the kid back from getting a more meaningful run in the eyes of the coaching staff. Or is it that the press just isn't covering it and he actually is showing fairly well? I, I, I want to see it, Chris. That's it. I want to see it. And also, Eli Harold. Is that guy even still around? He should be. Uh, you got a Seagram's bet with Nate Geary on him. I know. Haven't heard his name. Do you ever hear... This is what I mean, folks. The coverage of training camp... People who write for a living are going to gravitate towards the stories that they feel are hot and that need to be told. Me as a football fan, and as someone who wants to know every aspect of what's happening, I got to wait to see it on the field because you guys are doing me a disservice. <laughs> They're doing me a disservice by not letting me know. And I guess maybe that's, Chris, maybe that's the downfall of us not being there this season. Is I can't see it with my own two eyes. So shame on me, I guess. But either way, I'm looking forward to seeing some of these things as they develop on the defense. On the offensive side of the ball, the second tier of skill players in this offense, Chris, that's something to get excited about. We discussed it with Joe Marino from the Lockdown Bills podcast about the fact that the pecking order on the depth chart might not be settled in terms of wide receivers, but there's not a whole lot of room left on the arc. You know what I mean? Like, it's filling up. The water's rising. You look at the top of it. You've got Zay Jones, John Brown, Cole Beasley. Roster locks. None of them. Robert Foster's on a uh, roster Hang lock? On. Hang on. Zay Jones, John Brown, Cole Beasley. Roster locks. In my eyes, Foster. Virtual lock to make the roster. Because he's cost-controlled forever and showed good chemistry last year with your quarterback. And then you've got Andre Roberts, who is your special teams ace. Pro Bowl returner. You signed him to a $2.5 million contract. You're not cutting him. If the team keeps six wide receivers, who gets that last spot? You've got five guys fighting over it. The next few weeks of actual games are going to be vital to any of the rest of the Bills' wide receivers' chances. I don't know to make a case that they deserve to be in consideration for it. And Chris, here's the thing that I... I said it last week, and I'll, I'll double down on it this week. When you look at the limited number of reps that you see from the starting offense, I think that this game, more so than the next two, are going to be an opportunity for guys like McLeod and Easley and Williams to illustrate to the staff that they deserve a bigger share of the involvement. Those reps, as the starters need to get their you know, get their time in and get acclimated to the game, are going to become more harder and harder to come by. So this game is a real opportunity for a kid like Sills or a guy like Easley or McLeod to show that they deserve a longer look on this offense. But with that said, Chris, this is where I fully expect McLeod to take that step forward past Easley and Sills. And I say that because he's played in the NFL. 
He understands the physicality and the speed and the technique it takes. Whereas these kids are just babes in the woods. If they weren't raw, they would have been drafted, correct? Correct. Okay. But if you watch Embedded, you can hear, uh, hear Bean talk about how he almost drafted Sills. Oh, my God. But, I, I mean, you know, having playing experience makes a whole lot of a difference. So this battle for this last wide receiver spot, conceivably, is going to be heated. And this game is really the biggest shot our backups are going to get in terms of reps, in terms of the coaches having a lot of tape on them. I think that this is a landmark game for that group. Offensive communication, Chris. This is another thing I'm going to be watching. I mean, I don't need to see Josh Allen throw a touchdown pass. It'd be nice, but I don't need it. I don't need to see LaShawn McCoy breaking people's ankles in the open field. If Even without those things, I could still call whatever happens with our starters and offense a success. Especially when you take into account the fact that they're probably going to go into this game without a big chunk of their what should be a starting NFL interior offensive line or a tight end group. I'm not going to take anything from who is starting or who gets plugged into what position. I'm not going to take that out of context. <laughs> I mean, Chris, it just seems like they're trying to keep their heads above water at this point. They're trying to feel the team not field it with legitimate NFL starters. So I don't expect stellar execution. What I want to see is the way the offense as a whole seems to communicate. We've got multiple new players on the offensive line and in the wide receiver group. I want to see, do the wide receivers seem to understand where they're expected to be? Are there any glaring communication issues between the offensive line and between their blocking assignments and between play calls? Because that's going to have a huge impact on a bunch of guys who are going to play a lot of snaps this game. I mean, Chris, our backups are playing starter, which means starting on the offensive line, which means our backups' backups are going to see more snaps. Yeah, so with that being said, is it wrong of me saying uh, I prefer not to see Josh Allen out there? (laughs) Well, I guess that's where this all starts and ends, right? Josh Allen. I know that most of you probably already think what you know I'm about to say, and you'd be wrong. I don't need a damn thing from Josh Allen at this point, other than him walking off the field under his own power, preferably without a concussion from running for his life. That's it. You go into this game, you throw the ball around a little bit, and you get the fuck out of Dodge. Because things could... Chris, we've seen enough disasters here in the preseason in Buffalo. I I don't want this to be one. I have a good feeling about this season. (laughs) I really don't want it to start off on the wrong note. So everybody go out there, here are the things I'm looking for, and for the love of God, can we try to make it out of this game as healthy as possible? Can we? Folks, Thursday night. Ah, I can't wait. I want to thank you all for showing up tonight. A huge shout-out to Joe Caparoso from TurnOnTheJets.com. Again, follow him at Joe Caparoso. At Jay Caparoso. Jay Caparoso on Twitter. Go follow Whistle Sports. And guys, football season is back. That means pizza and wings. If Thursday night, if you don't feel like cooking because it's, I mean, 7 o'clock, it's early for dinner. If you're in the South Buffalo, West Seneca, Sloan, or Cheektowaga area, you've got no excuse for not following Chris and I and making sure that your Bills games go along with Wise Guys Pizza. Go check him out. J.C. Felt's a great dude who does a lot of work in the community, Chris. That's, that's the reason I support his business. I mean, it, do, it also doesn't hurt that his food's damn good. Yeah. But the guy literally puts this puts South Buffalo on his shoulders. 
Oh yeah, he does a lot of stuff in the community. And if you're ever gonna get wings from uh, wise guys, make sure you ask that they put them on the pit. That's the key. <laughs> uh, guys, thank you so much for showing up tonight. Weekly podcasts. Who doesn't love it? We gotta get going. We will see you next week after the game. I can't wait. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Krueger, and this has been the Rock Power Report.